All right, before we get started on the show, first off, welcome. Welcome to the program. You made it to Wednesday. Congratulations. Uh, I'm physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Welcome to PT Pinecast. We save physical therapists from missing out on amazing insight, remarkable ideas, and motivational stories in the world of physical therapy. Before we get started, we want to let you know to say thanks to uh, one of our newest sponsors at your CBD store. They know that you want to be an up-to-date physical therapist. In order to do that, you need to know what it is, right? I hear from a lot of uh, outpatient PTs that their patients are coming in saying they're taking it and trying it. And they want to know how does it how does it change their treatment? How is it going to is it going to work inside the body while they're doing other things? The problem is there's so much information out there and so little time. So to find the right information, it can be daunting. All right, so that's why they've done the work for you. Here's what you do: go to cbdrx4u.com, check out their educational links, and begin speaking confidently and clearly about CBD for your patients. Again, check out the physician-led links at cbdrx4u.com. All right, let's get the show started. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. Like craft beer for your ears. This is the PT Pinecast. I was trying to work in like a joke, like this this show's going to be exciting today. We've got some great guests lined up, a pretty good topic. Hopefully it'll keep you awake because we're talking about sleep, but I couldn't find just the right dad joke vibe to get that, but that's what we'll be talking about. Uh, really going to dig into something that we, we had talked about uh, a while ago. Um, I think it made the, the rounds sort of like that news cycle around PT Twitter, and that is sleep and how is sleep health integrated into physical therapy. APTA put out a House of Delegates position paper, uh, a position statement on the PT's role in sleep health. We'll talk about that just a little bit. Why is sleep a problem? I don't want to call myself an expert, but most nights I do it I, uh, with no practice. Don't even train me. But what can we and should we be looking at in terms of how is this affecting our patient's health and what we as a PT could do about it in our scope of practice, right? What do patients believe is optimal sleep? What do we believe? What does the research say? So that's what we'll bring in today's guests. Uh, first, uh, our guest is a physical therapist and full-time educator with Evidence in Motion. He's completing his Doctor of Science in Physical Therapy at Bellin College with a research focus on sleep and pain health. And returning guest as well, an associate professor in the physical, uh, physical Therapy and Rehab Science Department and director of the Sleep, Health, and Wellness Lab at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Welcome, Brett Nielsen and Katie Siangsikin. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. Guys, welcome back. Uh, before, we, uh, before we hit record, I was, you guys are both returning guests. And I had said we, we've never had you on the show live with this live new broadcast feature. Uh, but we had you on, uh, Katie, we had you on via phone. And Brett, we recorded in person at National Student Conclave in Miami. And I was wearing a little bit, a little bit of a different outfit. Do you want to tell people what the outfit was? Yeah, yeah I believe it was a, a Spider-Man costume. And yeah. we filmed it from a, a loud bar at NAC. And it was a, a blast. It was a lot of fun. At National Student Conclave Miami. National Student Conclave traditionally had fallen on or around Halloween. I wasn't just walking around wearing full head-to-toe, by the way. People couldn't tell. Head-to-toe spandex, which is bold. But Miami was super nice. It was warm. I felt free to wear the uh, the spandex outfit. Strangely enough, that was not even the weirdest outfit in that bar. It's Miami. They've got some weird, weird things going on. So uh, welcome back to the show. Um, I'm having, because I've, I've gone full 2020, 2021, uh, the first round we talk about what we're drinking, we get the hard questions out of the way first. Uh, I'm having a Corona. You might as well embrace the, just embrace the suck. So why not just embrace the Corona? So cheers to you guys. You guys having anything tonight? It's Wednesday. What are we drinking? 
Well, I'm, I'm still at work, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to make it home, but I, I did not. Um, so I'm, I'm drinking some tea. Um, it's not terribly exciting, but it's best I could do at work right now. It's Pinecast. You can put whatever you want in the pint. It could be beer. It could be, it could be tea or coffee. Brett, what do you got? Um, I'm finishing up work as well. I'm out on the uh, West Coast in Seattle, Washington. So it's uh, maybe a little early, but um, I'm drinking an Olipop right now. So okay, a nice, tasty, sparkling tonic beverage. So that's fine. All right. We call that our first round. We call <laughs> what we're drinking. It's brought to you by our friends from Owens Recovery Science. They're a single source for PTs looking for certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Uh, Johnny Owens and my team flying around the world and uh, educating uh, professional sports teams and then clinicians who work outpatient inpatient. They were just involved in that, uh, that ESPN story with Alex Smith. Stefania Bell was uh, nice enough to produce that and uh, talking about how they use BFR and Alex Smith's return from a devastating leg injury all the way back on the field. So find out more about BFR as the cool kids are calling it these days at OwensRecoveryScience.com. So before we jump into sleep, I just want to discriminate against something. Um, Brett, in your in your intro, in your bio, we talk about you are currently getting your Doctor of Science in Physical Therapy. That is different than a DPT. That's a DSCPT. I didn't memorize that. I'm reading it. There's a lot of letters there. What's the difference? This is something like I feel like I feel like I've seen and just didn't understand, and then I never looked up. But since you're here, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question because there's a, a big misnomer. Um, a lot of people in physical therapy hear about terminal doctorates, and you got to be careful throwing around the word terminal, um, especially outside of uh, the PT profession. When I tell my friends and family, "Oh, I'm doing my terminal doctorate," people are like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Um, terminal, you know, is often associated with with death, which is you know very serious. So, um, but it is referred to as a terminal doctorate, or, or more maybe commonly or better. Uh, maybe politically correct would be an educational or, or uh, yeah, an educational doctorate, right? So it's in a doctorate that is focused on uh, more education versus a clinical doctorate, which would be a DPT. So you can think of a DSC on this kind of same platform as a doctor of philosophy or a PhD um, or um, doctor of education, EDD, et cetera. So so you're just going for it. You're just full out going for it. Yeah. So, well, it, it relates to my, um, you know, what's new in my life. So I actually, the the, the introduction uh, says I'm full-time with Evidence Emotion. I'm, I'm still faculty with Evidence Emotion, but I, as of January, have taken a full-time uh, faculty position with the new developing program at Hawaii Pacific University, which will be the very first uh, physical therapy program in the state of Hawaii. So um, excited about that new opportunity and and uh, really pursuing the DSC is what's kind of led me down that pathway. So I will uh, extend the olive branch to welcome that program into existence. If you guys ever want to do a live show, I'm willing twist my arm to go to Hawaii to do we I mean back in the back in the olden days when we used to do things in person like right now as we're recording you know it's CSM and that thing used to be jam-packed into a week and now that's spread out virtually across the uh, the month but uh when we used to do things in person yeah we used to go to PT programs so well congratulations that's great build a program and hey the first one in in, in an area that's that's got to be a great feeling absolutely all right. So so both of you really have uh, backgrounds in sleep. We've had you on the show before talking about this topic. It's made really the rounds on social media, which I think is a good thing because it really puts some areas in practice into focus and sleep being one of them. Um, so let's start off like how is sleep health integrated phys into physical therapy? Most of the times our patients are awake, but 
we know that uh, you know recovery does occur, and some some parts of recovery uh, occurs while there's while our patients are sleeping. So, Katie, we'll start with you. Why is sleep so so important for a physical therapist to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's a, a great question to start off with. I mean, I, I think when we think about you know kind of the three pillars of optimal health, right? Like we think about good nutrition, we think about exercise and sleep. Like sleep is a, a very important pillar of optimal health. And so, you know, as PTs, we tend to focus on the physical activity and the exercise and the re- rehabilitation from injury. But I think, you know, as we're, we're, we're really doing a better job of looking at the whole person, you know, we really need to make sure that we're talking to them about their sleep health in addition to, to nutrition as well. And, and we really do know that sleep is an incredibly important time when our body is able to heal, you know? So a lot of the patients that we're working with, you know, they have suffered some sort of an injury or, you know, a disease onset. And so if they're not getting optimal sleep, chances are their body is not able to optimally heal, you know, from that injury as well. Brett, chime in. This is because this is the, this is down your alley too, right? Is she, is, she, is Katie just, just hitting all the high notes right there? Yeah, she's she's hitting all the high notes, and 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 Katie is absolutely the leading sleep expert in physical therapy by far. Um, you know, I had a I think how I arrived at at sleep in developing my interest in it is treating patients in in pain, uh, particular. And I I practice in a outpatient physical therapy clinic, um, and was seeing you know more complex uh, uh, patient cases, and you start to kind of notice some similar behaviors. And a lot of these patients come in, they're not in good health. Um, they're not eating well. They're not moving. And if you start questioning about it, they're not sleeping well either. And uh, a wise mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Adrian Lowe, for those of you who, who don't know Adrian, um, you know, one of the kind of leading experts in, in pain uh, science um, has, you know, said, and I, I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but uh, he's the one I heard it from, you know, if you can get a patient in pain to sleep, game over. Um, and so I just started recognizing like, here we are trying to mobilize and, and get people moving, but what if addressing the foundational issues of, of health could better prepare people to actually start moving and doing the things that we're trying to get them to do. Right. So often in in PT, right, we're trying to create behavior change and we're so sometimes we're beating our head against the wall, right? Because we can't quite do that. But what if our patients aren't quite ready for that? And what if we maybe need to start asking better questions or different questions and intervening in a different way to set them up for more success, if you will. All right. So Katie, let's come back to you. You said optimal sleep, right? So let's say you're talking and, and this is this is a big part of, of the subjective exam when you can get there. And I bet you sometimes patients um, kind of just view it as a throwaway, right? Well, why are they asking me about sleep? I'm here because of my shoulder. Um, how do you ask, what, what are you looking for in those questions when you're when you're when you're working with a patient? What would you advise PTs to ask to be able to to measure how optimal their sleep might be? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, and, and obviously it depends on how you define optimal, you know, and, and I think we oftentimes think of optimal in terms of duration, um, and, and that certainly is a piece of it, right? Um, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends that, that adults get at least seven hours of sleep uh, each night um, on average for optimal health. Um, so, so that's a very important piece of the puzzle. So I think, you know, that's a great place to start is on average, how much sleep are you getting, you know, at, at night? Uh, but but we can't overlook quality either, you know, I because I, you could sleep for for eight hours and be getting really terrible sleep. 
Um, so I like to ask, um, you know, my, my patients, you know, how would you describe your sleep quality and, and leave it open-ended? You know, if you, if you want to, you could say, you know, would you say it's very good, you know, very bad or, you know, somewhere in between. I like to have people describe it, you know, because the words that they use is often very eye-opening, um, you know, so duration and quality. And then too, I think getting some sort of an idea of, you know, how long has these, have these sleep issues been going on? You know, is it because of their injury or the reason that they're coming to see you, the physical therapist, or have they been having a sleep issue for a longer time? You know, because then you're starting to think about, you know, could they have an underlying sleep disorder where they really need to be referred uh, for further assessment? Or is it because, you know, like Brett said, that, that they, you know, if they've had surgery or they're having pain, um, and if you're able to calm that pain and, and address the issue that they're, they're, why they're seeing you, in addition to talking about, you know, prom prompting good sleep health, you know, I, I think that you might have a slightly different way of, uh, you know, kind of uh, talking to your patients about sleep issues. Sometimes you might be the first medical professional who really spends more than five minutes on it. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's something that, you know, people will probably tend to find is that, you know, I've had so many of my, the people that I work with where they'll say things like, gosh, you know, you're the first person in 10 years that has asked me about my sleep. Like it's not being asked by, by, by their physician, by their nurse, by the other healthcare providers, and and not to, you know, to throw those people under the bus because, you know, oftentimes these individuals have, you know, other things that are going on and that's why they're seeing that individual, you know, but if, if no one's asking them about their sleep, then obviously it's going, you know, unaddressed and untreated, right? Um, and so wh why not physical therapists? You know, it's certainly within our scope of practice to start that conversation and to, uh, you know, to, to give um, education on ways that those individuals can um, optimally, you know, sleep better. Brett, you brought up what, uh, what Adrian Lowe had said. If you can get someone in chronic pain to sleep, like game over. So it, it kind of begs the question, right? Is it, is it chicken or the egg? Is, are, are the sleep disturbances causing the chronic pain or the chronic pain causing the, the sleep disturbances? Or are they just together? You're not going to tease those out. So try to improve both. Um, but it, it starts to beg the question, like this, this, this points in the direction of needing to pay attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually um, a fair amount of evidence that's been published over really the last 20 years um, on sleep health with with much more focus in the in the last decade. Um, but there, the evidence at this point would suggest that how well somebody is sleeping, so how much and, and the quality is likely a stronger predictor to their pain than pain is a predictor of their sleep, which oh, wow. starts to really point at the, you know, here we are trying to help them with their pain and get moving better. But if sleep is really driving that, um, we might be intervening again in the, in the, the or starting at the wrong spot. And it, it's, it makes sense too, right? Think about yourself. Like when you don't get a good night's sleep, how, how well do you like uh. interact with other people and I mean, the, the dark cloud is kind of gloomy over you that day, right? Like everything, nothing's going well and can't get through my email and I've had to sit in this meeting and so-and-so said this to me, you know, like nothing's going well. So it makes sense that you're neurologically more amped up when you aren't getting good quality sleep. So it makes sense that if somebody has a pain problem, they're not sleeping well, their pain problem is probably being amplified even further. I, uh, I did I did afternoon radio for most of my radio career. I right? drive time, right? Two to seven, a um, lot of phone calls, a lot of concert uh, and beer giveaways. But for two weeks in my radio career, I was a, a morning co-host. And the reason it did not last, I was not able 
to adjust to a morning sleep schedule. So those, the, the other guys in the show were getting up around four in the morning, get on the air at six. Now, when they were done at 10 or 11, they were done for the day, but then they had to do appearances at night. So they go home, they'd sleep for a few hours, get up and go to a concert or do a bar gig and then go back to sleep again. My brain, I realized, said, if you don't get six or seven in a row, it counts as, it's binary, it counts as zero. So I realized that about myself because I'd walk around the radio station for the rest of the day as a complete ass. Like I had no, and I was pretty, you know, amicable guy, but I was a changed person for just a couple of weeks when I, when my sleep quality, because I was so nervous about oversleeping, right? So I couldn't even really sleep when I was sleeping. And of course it got shortened or split up and everything hurt. I mean, I'm thinking back to that two weeks and I can still tell you what my elbows and my knees felt like. It just hurt. Well, I have, I have small children. Um, and when they, you know, when they were kids and little and toddlers, you know, I mean, I wasn't sleeping well for years and like, I was just in a fog. And then finally, when my littlest was old enough to where he was, you know, sleeping through the night in his own room on a consistent basis, it was, it was like this fog just lifted. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can like form thoughts and complete sentences. And it was, I don't even think you realize how, how you're not feeling very good, you know, in multiple ways, be it pain or, you know, reduced cognitive function or, you know, just not feeling great, right? Until you then start sleeping better and you're like, oh my gosh, that makes such a big difference. Because you just, you just get it done, whether it's work or, you know, caring for children or caring for loved ones, you just get it done. Like that, that starts sort of to get pushed back. It's like sleep is a luxury, but we start to realize it's really more of a necessity to function. Right. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't taking a text message on my phone a second ago. What I was doing was I was looking at, I just started wearing the Apple watch and one of the features is sleep. So I know for the last 14 days, I've been averaging seven hours and 30 minutes of sleep, which isn't bad, right? I, I, that's actually higher. If you had asked me how long you'd sleeping, I'd say, I don't know, six hours. But according to uh, according to Siri or on, my, on my wrist, it's about seven and a half. Um, wearables, how, how often do you guys, if the patient has them or has access to it, how often are you able to look at that information? And if you're looking, what are you looking at? You want to go first, Brett? Or? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I'll go first. Um, I've heard Katie spiel and, and I, and I fully, you know, and, uh, support it and, and she'll share it in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but I'll say wearables are a slippery slope and, um, it's not something that I recommend to my patients usually because they can become a source of anxiety. Um, and a lot of patients aren't really interested in the data. Now you will have some that are interested in the data they want to it. They'll ask you about it. And then, you know, I'm not opposed to it, but we kind of set up some, some rules, right? Or, or we, we kind of define what it is. Um, I personally wear a wearable. Um, I actually wear this. It's a ring. Was it um, the loop? It's, this is called uh, an aura ring, um, okay. O-U-R-A. And I pers I've been wearing this now for about two years. And for me, it, that I'm a data-driven person, right? I'm, a, uh, I'm going to school and I'm doing research. And so I'm really interested in my numbers. But what's amazing to me is this wearable has really changed my sleep behaviors. So it's bringing mostly positive uh, spin to my life. And I've gotten in a good habit of like, if I know I didn't get a good sleep, I just don't check it um, because I don't need that negative reinforcement. Um, although it can work the other way. Sometimes you like feel like, ah, I did not get a good night's sleep. And then your wearable actually says you did. And so there's a, maybe a little placebo uh, there as as well. So um, there's lots out there. They're not perfect. They're not super accurate. Um, so you kind of have to take them with a grain of salt. But if they're 
helping you change their your behaviors, um, I think they can bring a positive thing and they're getting better. So that's what I'll, I'll say. About I'll just it. interject before we hear what, I can't yeah. wait to hear what Katie says. Cause like to see Brett's face, he's like, I don't know if I want to go before. So <laughs> please, 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 please. But I am a complete golden retriever. I'm a Pavlov's dog. I, I got this. It wasn't, it wasn't planned, but man, with, especially with the Apple watch with the, for me, the rings, like the movement ring and the stand up and the exercise I do. I like to see that damn thing full. So I'm like, all right, can I go take a walk around the block? So I think that's one of those positive reinforcements that you're talking about, which is, hey, I'm setting a goal for 40 minutes of, of movement or 40 minutes of exercise a day. I can split that up. There's a good positive reinforcement. I actually didn't find the sleep function for a month or two. And then I was like, ooh, ooh, how is this going to go? And it actually was better than I thought. But I could see if it was worse than I thought. It might have been a little bit of a maybe a little bit of anxiety in there. But I think I, that that's how I am. But I could see where some people where this is an issue where that could be an even, you know, even an even more of a negative driver. All right, Katie, feel free. Let her rip on this. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering what I've said in the past. <laughs> no, no, um, you did, you, nothing. <laughs> I didn't mean to set that up that way. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I absolutely agree that there's definitely pros and cons, you know, and, and I think. I think the important thing is that if you are wearing a wearable or if you are a physical therapist who is, you know, looking at wearable data that your participants or your patients are bringing in, um, you know, to just make sure that you're aware that that some are not very accurate. You know, they, they do a decent job of measuring wake, but they're not really all that accurate at measuring sleep. Um, you know, because if you think about it, like they're just measuring movement, right? Like, so if you're up and you're awake and you're moving, then it's like, yep, you're awake. But if you're laying in bed, laying really still, and but you're awake, you know, it can say that you're sleeping. So they, they oftentimes tend to overestimate the amount of sleep that you're getting and also overestimate your sleep efficiency. So another uh, kind of way that we look at sleep quality. Um, so I, I think you just have to go, go in with it, eyes open with that. Um, but absolutely, you know, the, the positives is that, you know, one, it, it, I feel like I have a lot more conversations with people about sleep, you know, because so many people are wearing wearables now, you know, they'll, they'll want to talk about their sleep, which I think is fantastic. So I, I think using it as a tool as a conversation starter is fantastic. And just that people are more aware about their sleep, they want to talk about it. So in, in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's an awesome, you know, uh, definitely a pro for that. Um, you know, and then for Brett's point, you know, if it does change behavior, you know, if it does motivate people to to do behaviors that are going to help them sleep better, then that's fantastic too. Um, you know, I, I have seen you know a few people that really become super anxious though about their sleep because they have this wearable on and it's telling them they're getting really bad sleep. And you know, and so, but again, you know, I, I think you just have to talk to those people about you know what would you think about not wearing it, and and also you know educating that. This may not be a really a very accurate uh, assessment of your sleep. You know, I, I usually like to kind of throw it back of, you know, well, how do you feel when you wake up? You know, just because your your wearable tells you you didn't sleep well, if you if you feel like you slept well and you wake up feeling refreshed, then chances are you know that you've slept pretty darn well. Um, so we, we don't tend to use them um, for our research purposes. We use uh, research grade wearables called actographs. Um, because those have been shown to be valid and reliable measures, but certainly, you know, they're expensive and, you know, they do take time to analyze the data. So I think, you know, in clinical practice, using wearables is great, um, you know, as long as you kind of know the pros and cons. And, and I think also to Brett's point, you know, the, the technology is constantly changing. You know, there's actually just a paper that came out 
like a month or two ago where they were comparing seven commercially available wearables compared to an actigraph. And they actually found that these, you know, some of the seven were, were decently good at, at assessing sleep. You know, so I think as the technology improves, as the algorithms improve, you know, then, then I think we're really close to having a, a wearable that, that is maybe a little more accurate and uh, would, I'd, I'd feel more comfortable using it then. We've come a long way from the, the clicking pedometer my dad used to wear on his belt when he used to go golfing to see how far he walked. When, when in, the, in terms of accuracy, yes, it was measuring steps, but how accurate um, But as these things get a little bit better. So let's go away from the technology and, and talk about um, what are optimal sleep behaviors then? You know, not to go completely away from this, but I set up the, uh, the sleep app on, the, uh, on the, the Apple Watch, and it does say, hey, you said you wanted to go to bed by 1125. It's uh, it's 1045. So you need to start winding down. And the first couple of times I saw that, uh, what, what, I don't need that. And then after a while, I started to say, yeah, I do need a half hour to kind of start to, you know, get away from the, the screens or, or turn off the Netflix and start to, hey, go brush your teeth and start to do the, all the behaviors I need to do before I go to bed. But, you know, what are the, what are the things you discuss with your patients about what are optimal sleep behaviors? Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and I think to, you know, to, to answer that question is actually really helpful to know, like, what are the physiological mechanisms that drive our sleep? Because I, then I think it helps to give, like, the why of, you know, why you tell your patients to do these certain things. Um, you know, and so not to, you know, to go into major detail, but, you know, there's two major physiological processes that drive our sleep. One is our circadian rhythm, you know, which people have likely heard of. You know, our bodies as humans run on a 24-hour cycle. Um, there's a nucleus in our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that secretes melatonin that basically kind of tells our brain when it's time to go to sleep and when it's time to wake up. Um, you know, and it's really driven by light, you know, so there's a connection from your retina to that area of the brain. Light tells your, your brain it's time to wake up and dark tells your brain it's time to sleep. Um, you know, so that, that's one mechanism. And then the other mechanism is, is called um, our sleep drive our sleep homeostasis. And that's basically, you know, how, how long you've been awake, how much activity you've done, you know, you kind of think of it as like a balloon, right? So throughout the day, that balloon blows up, you know, as you're more active, as you've been awake, um, so that you have really big sleep drive. So then at night, when you get into bed, you fall asleep quickly and easily, you know, and so ideally, you want both your circadian rhythm and your sleep drive to be optimally strong. And not only both of them be optimally strong, but optimally aligned, right? Like, because if your circadian rhythm is kind of on one thing and then your sleep drives on another, you know, you're still, you still could potentially have difficulty sleeping. Uh, so we want to optimize both of those systems. And then, Jimmy, to your, to your point, you touched on, you know, the, the sense of like your arousal system, right? Like, so your sympathetic nervous system, um, you know, we, we also want to make sure that that is, is fairly well dampened especially in the evening time, um, you know, so that way when you do get into bed, you know, that sympathetic nervous system is fairly low. So that way then, you know, that great circadian rhythm, your sleep drive super high, arousal is really low, magic happens, you get into bed and you fall asleep really quickly. Um, so the strategies that I, that I use with my patients really center around, you know, those kind of three concepts um, you know, and then, and then of course environment, you know, things like, again, wanting the room to be really dark, having it be cool, eliminating noise as much as possible, um, you know, so those thinking about environment as well. So let's talk uh, about things that uh, things people will do, like, I don't know, maybe like at 7.30 at night, they record a podcast, maybe they're drinking a beer while this, and I know, like, I'm 41, I think when, I mean, when I hit like 35, before that, I could drink kind of whatever I want and go to have a great sleep or anyway I thought I was and wake up and be fine. Like 35 on, you know, three, four beers in a night out with my friends, man, I would, I'd fall right to sleep. 
but I would sleep like garbage. And like, so I was like, well, I guess this is just what happens when I, when I get older. But what I realized is if I could get some water in me or if I could drink earlier and give myself some time before bed. So I imagine what I'm getting at is I'm not looking for you to diagnose me or help me with my sleep. I'm guessing like some of these things come into play and you, you have to tease these out for the individual. Absolutely. Like, so every, every patient that I work with, you know, as I'm taking kind of their subjective history about their sleep issue, you know, I'm kind of funneling it into these buckets, right. Of, okay, that falls under circadian rhythm. So focusing on things like regular wake up time, reducing light in the evening, increasing light in the morning, you know, and then I'm funneling into that bucket of sleep drive, you know, so if they're, you know, if they're sleeping in, or, you know, they're, they're laying in bed for a long time, they're not very physically active, they're taking naps, you know, those are all things that go into the sleep drive funnel, you know, if, and, and then in the arousal, you know, funnel, if they're, you know, if they're not winding down in the evening, maybe they're just kind of more of an excitable, anxious person, you know, so I'll funnel that into, okay, we need to talk about that. And then kind of these general, you know, sleep hygiene things. So Jimmy, like you talked about, you know, alcohol, right? You know, it is a stimulant, right? Well, no, I should rephrase that. It's a depressant. But if if you if you're drinking it, especially in, in larger quantities, you know, yes, absolutely, it will help you fall asleep, but it's going to disrupt your sleep. So you're going to get less optimal sleep staging. Yeah. Um, you know, and then nicotine is a stimulant. So you know, sometimes having a conversation about that. So you know, so I kind of funnel it in those different buckets, and then of course also the environmental factors to talk about. Um, so that's kind of how I, I strategize. You know, when I'm working with patients about kind of how to cover those different topics for those different individuals. I just love how many th- how many questions you've probably put in the audience's head of because I mean we started off with just like how long and how well, but now you're I mean now in the last five minutes I feel like Katie has just like rung so many different bells in like terms of the different areas and things that you could be asking because they all add up to the end uh equation of how how well or what the outcome will be in terms of recovery during sleep now how about this weekends right because we typically have a monday through friday regular schedule and then on weekends myself maybe some other people might stay up a little bit later how what do you suggest on weekends in terms of not changing that regular circadian rhythm so much that by monday you're you're fighting to get back into it like wh- wh- how does that come into play um so so i mean you know like everything it, it kind of depends like if if you if you have insomnia then i'm i'm very strict I encourage you to be very strict about your wake up, you know, and having a very regular wake up time. But if in general, you're a decent sleeper and you want to sleep in on the weekend, I really have no problem with that. You know, ideally you'd keep it within like an hour, you know, anything more than that, you, you run the risk of disrupting your circadian rhythm. I mean, you can almost think of it as like, you know, traveling across time zones, right? Like, so if you're sleeping in for two hours, you're traveling across two time zones and then you've got to travel back, you know, by, by, by Monday morning. Um, And so I think, you know, people kind of can relate to that. You know, a lot of people have to travel, gone across time zones and they're kind of like, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm going to admit this, you know, live on air that, you know, I like to sleep in too, you know, and I, my, my natural circadian rhythm, I'm more of an evening type person. Like I am not a morning person and, you know, the coronavirus and, you know, working from home where I have, have had a little bit more latitude in my schedule. Like I would prefer to go to bed later and sleep later. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think, you know, some of us just, we just kind of have that shifted circadian rhythm. So, you know, yeah, if you, as long as you kind of know what you're getting into, you know, but absolutely, if you're having, if you have insomnia, you're having difficulty sleeping for other reasons, then really the recommendation is to to really have a very regular wake up time, because that really does help tra- and train that circadian rhythm 
Um, so that's a really important piece for those individuals. Yeah, good advice. So an hour. All right. So at least that that be be something to aim for. Uh, Nick asked a great question in the comments. He's bringing in some different things that are now available over the counter. And I kind of asked this really briefly before we uh, before we hit record. Uh, Nick's asking about CBD or melatonin. I know I've got like these like you know grape gummy bears that a friend gave me when I mentioned this past summer I was having trouble staying asleep i have no problem i could fall asleep on a train a plane an automobile not driving in the passenger seat so i have no problem falling asleep but you know so so where do these things come in the cbds the melatonins what does the research say or what do you guys say and i feel like it's and it depends or there's some research needed on this coming into it but uh you know practically what do you what do you begin to talk about with patients when this gets brought up yeah um I, you know, I'll, and I'll, I'll tackle it two different ways. You know, let's start with the, maybe the melatonin first. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the big thing with melatonin, and especially because it's, you know, if, if you're taking it from over the counter, so it's a supplement, so it's not regulated like medication is, um, you know, of course, there is uh, prescription uh, melatonin as well. And that is, of course, regulated. But the issue with melatonin is that there was a study that was done that, um, you know, looking at different supplements of melatonin, that the potency of melatonin varied a lot depending on which product you are taking. So, you know, it may say you're taking five milligrams when really you're taking zero or you're taking, you know, a hundred, you know, so that, I think that's, that's something to be really cautious about. Um, And then, and then the other thing is that, you know, people tend to take too much, like most of the over the counter melatonin comes in five milligrams. And really the recommendation is to start at like 0.5 to one milligram um, and then gradually increase if needed. Um, the other issue is people tend to take it at the wrong time. You, you know, a lot of people take it right before bed and really the optimal time to take melatonin is two to three hours before your, the time that you want to be falling asleep. Because I mean, if you think about it, you have to ingest it. It has to get in your bloodstream. It's got to get to your brain. It's got to supplement your natural melatonin production. Um, so those are, those are really kind of big issues. And then, and then I guess maybe the the last other big thing is that, uh, you know, I I think people, uh, it's, it's overused, you know, really, the evidence for melatonin as far as people are just having difficulty sleeping or if it's, uh, you know, insomnia, the, the recommendation is not for melatonin. Really, melatonin has been shown to be effective for those people who have a circadian rhythm shift, you know, so either too early or too late. Um, so, so really, the melatonin is, is helping to regulate that circadian rhythm. So if you don't have a circadian rhythm issue, chances are that you really don't need to be taking melatonin. Um, you know, and then I guess, sorry, I'm going to add one more thing. Um, you know, then the other thing too, is it's, it's, it becomes a crutch for a lot of people, yeah. you know? And so, you know, I think people tend to take it because they want to be sleeping better, but oftentimes really where, where the effort would be best spent would be to be addressing some of those behavioral issues around sleep. And then also if, if you know, addressing some of the negative thoughts sometimes that people are having about sleep. Um, and then with CBD, you know, the, there is some evidence that CBD perhaps can um, help people sleep better, um, but the evidence really is not that great right now. The, the studies that have been done have been really small sample size, um, and so I, 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 I don't necessarily recommend that um, just because the evidence is so low at this point. I, I would anticipate that more will be coming out, though, um, probably as we speak. Yeah, yeah. One more too, and just just the expense. So as as Katie talked about it, it oftentimes leads to people creating dependencies. And these supplements are well, they're cheap if you buy one bottle and you take it a few times. But over time, I mean, you're talking fifteen dollars a bottle that they're going through on a regular basis, and so now you're adding expense, you know, to somebody else. So I always look at that component as well um, for for our patients. 
All right, we'll start with Brett. And Katie, feel free to jump in on this one because here's where the rubber meets the road for physical therapists anyway, I, I think. What do patients currently believe or, or, or what is what is the belief structure in the clinic about sleep when a patient comes in about a musculoskeletal condition like back pain? I'm here for my back and, you know, my doctor said something about a sciatic or it's my shoulder and a rotator cuff. And you're asking me about sleep. I just feel like, are you even, did you read the chart? Did I put, click the wrong box? So how do you, what is their belief as they're coming in? And then how do we flip that around? Hey, we're just asking because this could be contributing. Uh, this, is, this is a great question, Jimmy, because this is actually what's fueling uh, some of my research right now um, in my DSC studies. And, and there isn't much or, or any um, that I'm aware of. Katie may, may know um, of some, but in physical therapy research, there isn't much published or known about what patients believe about sleep. So that's what the study that we're looking at right now. We have uh, seven or eight different uh, sites all across the U.S. where we're collecting a kind of single time point survey study as people come in to physical therapy for back pain. And we're uh, questioning them about how much they're sleeping and their quality of sleep. Uh, we're questioning them about their pain. Uh, we're using a scale called the dysfunctional beliefs about sleep. So it's asking them questions about what their beliefs are about sleep. And then we're also measuring just their sleep disturbance with um, the promise measure, uh, which has been kind of a, a is a, maybe a new modern, more um, research-based measure um, that is used to, to look at uh, sleep disturbance through, you know, a questionnaire. So um, at this point, you know, it's really interesting that the, you know, we're still midway through data collection. Um, we've got about 70 cases and um, the beliefs are all over the place. Um, and what I find super fascinating so far, and this, again, this is all still ongoing is the amount of hours people are sleeping and not to take us off the belief question, but I don't think a lot of people understand the connection between sleep and pain and overall yeah. health. And, um, 90% of our, uh, participants that we've collected data from so far are getting less than seven hours of sleep per night, 90%. Um, that's, you know, so there, there is a clearly a disconnect between the importance of sleep and, and their overall health. Well, you can, we can go further off of the, the belief, uh, question, but kind of like coming back is like, we sort of wear, um, lack of sleep and grinding almost like a badge of honor. I mean, like in, you know, in my, when I was young in my radio, radio heydays, it was like, how many hours of sleep you guys? I did an event late and then did a morning and it was almost like I'm putting in the work, um, but really long term, you're just burning the candle at both ends and you're, you're going to grind yourself down and you're not going to be useful for anybody, including yourself. Uh, Katie, when you, when you're looking at that, when I, when I ask, let's go back to that belief question. Cause I got more, but that belief question, um, what do you typically see or, 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 or as Brett alluded to, there's not much out there. There's not, you know, and I think it's fantastic that Brett is doing this research and doing this study. I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to, to see what you find. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not terribly surprised that the beliefs are probably, you know, across the board. You know, I, I think, you know, some people are super excited that, you know, their therapist is asking them about sleep because no one else is, you know, and they're, they're finally glad to have somebody to, to talk to, to answer their questions to provide education, you know, so I think, you know, that's like, best case scenario, right? People who are who are ready to hear this information. And then I think there's people kind of on the other end, you know, people who 
are like, oh yeah, you know, I, I get five hours of sleep, but really I'm fine. It doesn't affect me at all, you know, and, and they're really not open, you know? And so I think then it becomes, you know, where are they in their interest of, of changing their behavior, you know? And so maybe they're not terribly open in changing their sleep behaviors at that time. And, and that's okay. You know, they, they are in charge of, of, of them and, and their sleep. And, you know, I think sometimes building that rapport and, you know, helping them feel better for in other ways, you know, sometimes it opens the door to that conversation about sleep. Um, you know, but I, you know, I, I, I do definitely see kind of those different camps of people, um, you know, in, in my work, you know, people are seeing me because they want to sleep better, you know, and so I'm in that, that fortunate position of, you know, people are seeing me because they, 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 they want to hear this information and, and they want to be in these programs, um, you know, so I definitely get people who are very motivated to change their sleep and to really start sleeping better, um, but I'm really excited to see Brett's, you know, studies, and I, and I think, you know, Brett, you you kind of talked about. I think there's a lot of opportunity, right? Like, if you know, if there's a, such a huge percentage of of patients are having sleep issues, like, what a fantastic opportunity for physical therapists to have those conversations. You know, I, I that makes me super excited to think about. You know, gosh, if we have more physical therapists talking to their patients about how they can be sleeping better, and of course, you know, referring as needed. Um, you know, I, I, I see this as an amazing opportunity uh, for us as a profession. Yeah, I think for the patients likely who who don't who might not see the connection, you might lead them to a possible connection. And for the for those who already see a, a connection, you're just gonna, I mean, really, I think you're just enhancing a therapeutic alliance there. This person is paying attention to more than just my knee or my back. Oh, we're really doing a whole body thing here, huh? And I think that can only really elevate the perception of the profession uh, in the patient's eyes. Was there Absolutely. anything was there anything I didn't didn't ask or any topic that I didn't bring up that you guys would want to get into? I, I mean, I, maybe along that lines too, you know, as, as I think we're seeing, you know, too, just a change in like just culture, right? Like I think that there's more research coming out, you know, that you read, you, you can barely open up like Google News without there being some story about the importance of sleep. So I, I think that it really is changing, um, you know, the, the public's perception about sleep and just the awareness about sleep, which, you know, I think makes our job even easier as far as having those initial conversations. Yeah. When um, people see things, right? So it's almost like you follow the money, right? So now there are these supplements on the shelves and the wearables are looking at sleep. So now there's attention on it. Can we use that and take advantage of that attention for good? Can we use our powers of, of science to take it hold this, uh, of this attention? Um, I, th I think we can. I think both of you on the show are, are, are two examples of that. Absolutely. Um, I love that. I'll be doing more of this. I'll be starting. All right. So I'll need to start to winding down a little bit early in my own personal life and 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 bring this up, though. Um, anything that you'd suggest? I mean, you guys had mentioned uh, the validated outcome measure. Any other uh, like you know clinical tools that clinicians might be able to use in practice about sleep that you would suggest? Uh, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index is a fantastic, um, you know, it's a longer it's a longer one, so it's used in research, but it's also used in clinical practice. Um, honestly, my go-to resource is one that that Katie published uh, for the home health section. So maybe Katie, I'll, I'll let you share that because that right there is like a gold mine, and that all physical therapists need to have it. It has a decision tree. You can literally walk through and say, "What do I do with this patient um, and, and their sleep dysfunction?" Yeah, let's hear about that. Um, so I, I do have to give uh, Ken Miller credit because I had written that PTJ article about, you know, these different sleep tools and he approached me about having this opportunity to develop this toolkit for the home health section. And I was like, absolutely, I will do that. Um, and he suggested, you know, what about a decision tree? And I'm like, 
oh my God, that's brilliant. How come I never thought of that? And so, you know, so, so yeah, we developed uh, this decision tree and, and, and you know, we, we like to think it helps, you know, clinicians kind of, you know, ask the questions and then based on those answers, you know, guide them to kind of different points. Um, you know, we incorporate the insomnia severity index, which is a valid and reliable measure to look at insomnia, um, with the stop bang, if they might have uh, sleep apnea, a restless leg syndrome scale, um, you know, but I also want to recognize, you know, that that we are not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, board certified in sleep medicine physicians, uh, you know, and there's like 100 sleep disorders. And so I don't think it's reasonable for physical therapists to know all 100 of them. But I think we can certainly screen for those top three and then certainly recognize, you know, if, if they're still having sleep issues, you know, despite all my fantastic PT interventions, um, you know, then obviously referring as needed, you know, and, and to, to Brett's point, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index is a wonderful tool to, to look at sleep quality. Um, it is a, it's a little long, it's kind of clunky to score, um, but there are some um, kind of uh, faster versions and some online versions that people can use. Uh, the Upward Sleepiness Scale is another great one that looks at daytime sleepiness. Um, I like sleep logs. I think those are really helpful, um, both as a clinician, but then also really eye-opening for the patient a lot of times to be able to kind of track their sleep. Um, you know, and of course, wearables, you know, if, if you have an actigraph or, you know, if the person has a wearable, then, then certainly kind of capitalizing on that data that you're getting from there as well. To tie it all together, uh, Katie, the list that you just went through, uh, saying that we are not, in fact, sleep medicine professionals, but give a nod to the American Physical Therapy Association, and they put out a, uh, a House of Delegates position, the role of physical therapists and the American Physical Therapy Association, Association in sleep health. And it said just that, the bullet points, uh, screen for sleep dysfunction, identify impairments related to sleep dysfunction, implement and progress therapeutic interventions, educate society, patients, and clients, monitor and then, uh, then the most important uh, bullet there at the end, refer to sleep medicine professionals as indicated. So the APTA chiming in with uh, the topics of uh, sleep as well. And, um, and Brett really gets credit for spear driving, you know, getting that position to move forward. Like he was, the, he was, he led the team to get that written and to bring it forward. And so I, you know, I, I appreciate the efforts that he put into getting that position passed. Uh, was it was a lot mean, of work. What that mean to you, Brett, when you saw the House of Delegates, you know, the profession talking about that and then passing it? Yeah. So the the quick backstory on it is there was mention of sleep health in the health promotion, um, you know, uh, position statement. And in 2019, the House of Delegates was really cleaning up a lot of language. And unfortunately, it just got cut because it was a long laundry list item. I happened to be serving on the Washington delegation and recognized it after the fact. And I said, wait a minute, in, in 2019, we also passed a very similar motion for that, uh, similar to the sleep one for diet and nutrition. So here I am, I'm going, okay, health, we need diet, nutrition, movement and sleep. Okay, great. PT, we've got the movement thing covered. Um, we now have a great position statement for uh, PT's role in diet and nutrition. Where's the sleep, right? And it, and it literally didn't exist after 2019. So there was like a year gap. And so um, recognizing that through my work at Bellin College and, um, you know, some of my collaborators there, Mark Shepard and Chris Dickerson, you know, we quickly, you know, wait, wait a minute, I got to do something about this. So brought it up to the Washington delegation and we said, hey, we've got to collaborate with Katie and um, the Kansas delegation, um, AJ and, and uh, Stacia there were fantastic to work with. And so that's kind of how this thing was born. Um, uh, of course, with input from people like Janet Besner, et cetera, who are also kind of working in that space. So very much a collaborative effort, but um, super excited to be sitting there in the House of Delegates, well, virtually in 2020, and to see that 
unanimously pass. Um, so it was fantastic. And I, 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 in some ways it ended up being kind of fortuitous, right? I mean, like, cause I, I had no idea that it was taken out of that one position statement until I think it was Chris that mentioned that. And I was like, wait, what? I had no idea that sleep health was taken out. And so, I mean, really, yes, that was a bummer. And, and I think it was unintentional, you know, but I, I think it really gave an opportunity, you know, to really highlight the importance of sleep health, you know? And so some ways it's like, you know, this ended up being a great thing because now we have an entire position statement completely, you know, centered on sleep health, which I, I think just really speaks to the importance of it within our profession. Yeah. Well, thanks for keeping your eyes open and paying attention for stuff like that there, Brett. We need that. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. You guys ready to do three questions? All right. Doesn't All matter. Right. We're doing it anyway. Let's do three questions. <laughs> Three questions brought to you by our friends at Fusion Medical Staffing. Happy travel PTs start here. As a travel PT or PTA, you get to decide where, when, and how you do what you do best. Provide quality care to your patients. With a traveler first mentality, it means you get full control of your healthcare career so you can create the travel lifestyle you love and deserve. And with detailed job transparency, you can seriously choose your own adventure, just like those books that I used to cheat on uh, when I was in middle school. Uh, start your adventure at FusionMedStaff.com. That is FusionMedStaff.com. You guys are giggling. You used to cheat on those books too, right? You'd be like, turn to page 48 for the I just keep my finger in the back one and be like, no, I'm going to go back. So, uh, But you can do that. So again, uh, choose your own adventure. So three questions. We'll go uh, Brett and then Katie. Uh, first question is a where question. So once it's safe to travel, you can freely move about the country. Where's somewhere in the 50 U.S. you wouldn't mind going, Brett? Going to Hawaii. Going to Hawaii. <laughs> uh, Katie, what about you? You're in the Midwest. Um, so we're actually going to Utah in April. It's been on my bucket list of you know going to the national parks there. So yeah, we're going to do a two-week trip out to Utah. Hawaii, Utah, they have people there, which means they need physical therapists there. So again, fusionmedstaff.com. Second question is a what question. What's something that you have watched, read, or listened to? A book, movie, podcast, something that you think the audience would just gain value from? Can be PT or non-PT related, doesn't matter. Uh, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit fantastic read and with two young children in my home i was surprised to find out that i was reading a book about raising children which was fantastic it was a pleasant surprise i'll give her a nod too she does a podcast with stephen dubner who does the freakonomics podcast and so now it's angela duckworth and stephen dubner called no stupid questions and they're so conversational but then they like but she's like heavy research based and she'll like make research, dare I say, like fun and applicable. And they're using a lot of social science research, like obviously, because she's writing a book like Grit, but their podcast by NPR, No Stupid Questions, very well done. Angela Duckworth, really good. Uh, Katie, what's your uh, what's your what? What's something the audience uh, could watch, read, or listen to? Well, I'm going to have to say Why We Sleep uh, by Matthew Walker. Uh, that's my go-to. Um, you know, he, he's done a ton of research on, you know, sleep and, and learning and especially memory formation, but he does a fantastic job of taking that, that science and that research and distilling it into, you know, accessible information. And so for a lot of my patients that are interested in learning more about sleep, I oftentimes will recommend that book to them um, as just kind of an add-on uh, for some interesting information about sleep. That, that accessible, huh? So a patient, I mean, mm -hmm. 
That's great. I love that. Yeah, that book has come up a couple times. I'm going to have to throw that on the old uh, the queue to, to, to get that. Last question that we ask is always about people. Brett, who is someone the audience should know more about? Uh, somebody the audience should know more about. Oh, my goodness. Um, a chance to give someone like a nod, like, you know, flying under the radar but doing great stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, uh, Mark Shepard at uh, Bellin College. So I'm uh, obviously collaborating with him, but he's also the fellowship director of the um, OMPT Manual, Manual uh, Physical Therapy Fellowship there at Bellin College. And he is doing some fantastic stuff um, currently. So give him a nod. Love it. All right, Katie, who do you got? Who's your who? Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my colleague, uh, Stacia Trzenski brown uh, She's on the Kansas uh, delegate. She helped to, to, to move forward uh, the position statement. Um, I'm also giving her a shout out because she also um, helps to run our student-led uh, uh, PT clinic uh, that's been shifted completely telehealth. Um, and so has just done a fantastic job with uh, being able to, to pivot very quickly with COVID and has also cr then created, you know, clinical opportunities for our students that have maybe been displaced because of COVID issues. Um, so she's doing really amazing work at uh, KU Med. Doing, doing some really tough stuff in a really, like in a regular time, never mind in a difficult time. That's, that's tough stuff to do. So uh, that, that sounds well-deserved. Jimmy, I got to give one more nod to Jenny Jordan, who is the chief delegate of Washington, who I did not, I failed to mention. And uh, she was also a huge part of uh, making this all happen. So um, she was really the person to organize and connect behind the scenes and help, you know, craft language. So want to give her a nod too. Perfect. All right. That's three questions again, brought to you by our friends at Fusion Medical Staff at FusionMedStaff.com. Now it is time for the parting shot. Parting shot brought to you by our friends from the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. They know you want to be a confident, up-to-date orthopedic PT. In order to do that, you need an easy way to get the latest information so you can best treat your patients. Right? I mean, that's it. Uh, the problem is new information coming out every day, and you might not have time to keep up with all of it, which could make you feel overwhelmed and left behind. Maybe you don't know where to start. They get it. They know what it's like to feel like that. And that's why they created Current Concepts of Orthopedic PT. All right. That is one of the best resources to use. Maybe if you want to go and take that OCS exam or you just want to level your ortho game up uh, to get it, go to orthopt.org, register for current concepts of orthopedic physical therapy and begin your journey to being a confident and up to date orthopedic PT. Again, current concepts of orthopedic PT at orthopt.org. Really, it's your chance for that mic drop moment. The last thing you do. So we'll go Brett. And then Katie, Katie, I'll give you, I'll give, you'll be the ultimate close. Uh, what do you want to leave with the audience uh, as we wrap up today's uh, episode there, Brett? Uh, I, I just hope that everybody has in, enjoyed this information about sleep and kind of recognizes the role of the physical therapist and um, that we can play in, you know, improving sleep health uh, for our patients and, and for society and our, and our communities. I think it's a big deal. Right. Especially with our with APTA jumping behind that and saying, no, no, we're going to plant our flag at this. This is this is something we need to pay attention to. We're going to put, put the words behind it. Uh, Katie, your parting shot for today. 
Yeah, I mean, I would just kind of reiterate that, you know, I, I think, you know, recognizing our role in, in the promotion of sleep health, um, if you're not really sure kind of where to start or have those conversations, you know, there's a lot of really great resources out there. I'm happy to connect and I imagine Brett would be too, um, but just start having the conversations. Um, you know, that's, I think, the very the very best and the very first step um, and, and happy to, to share resources. Katie and Brett, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, next time, of course, I will I'm gonna be wearing the spandex Spider-Man outfit just out of just why not? I mean, we're not going anywhere for a while. Might as well just break that out of the closet. But uh, thanks for for giving us some real tactical advice, big picture and little picture on sleep and why you should be talking about this more with yourself and of course with your patients. So thank you guys so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes, yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right, show today brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. Brooks IHL offering continuing education courses in numerous specialty areas, six PT residency programs, an OMPT fellowship, as well as challenging but rewarding internships. The IHL specializes in the translation of information from evidence to patient management, Learn what they can do for you to support your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. ptpinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at buildpt.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It's poured fresh by me, physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Ingredients are sourced by our chief connections officer, Sky Donovan from Marymount University. And it's brewed fresh by producer and physical therapist, Juliet Dassinger. And by producer and creator, second year PT student, Bridget Nolan from Sacred Heart University. PT Pinecast is a podcast that saves physical therapists from missing out on amazing insight, remarkable ideas, and motivational stories. Make sure to follow us online at PT Pinecast and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I absolutely love you. I love you, love you, love you. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you found value in the show, all we ask is that you tell a friend. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.